0: Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. My name is Chip Oscarson, former co-director of International Cinema and associate professor of Interdisciplinary Humanities here at BYU, and the guest host for today's podcast. Joining me today is my close friend and colleague, George Hanley, who's a professor in Interdisciplinary Humanities as well, and associate director of the BYU Faculty Center. George is the author and editor of several books on ecocriticism, notably for the context we'll be talking about today, Caribbean Literature and the Environment, that he co-edited with Liz Delugri and Renee Gosson, as well as New World Poetics, Nature and the Edemic Imagination of Whitman, Neruda, and Walcott. I should also mention that he's the author of The Hope of Nature, Our Care for God's Creations, a book of essays about ecology and the Latter-day Saint tradition. Welcome back to the podcast, George. Thank you, Chip. It seems like we connect every semester or two to record an episode of the podcast, usually on some uh, vaguely environmental topic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess so. If Since you would be the other person to do the interview, then maybe you and I should swap seats once in a while.
0: <laughs> well it's always a pleasure to to have these conversations with you and in part this is why we created the podcast a few years ago it felt like there were these opportunities to have these great conversations with colleagues who are, are more expert in the areas that these films deal with and we wanted to make those uh, conversations more accessible to, to more people so we appreciate you making time to uh to be here and to talk about this film
1: i'm very happy to
0: Today, we're going to be talking about one of the films that are playing from the last week of the IC 2021 winter semester. It's called Death by 1000 Cuts by Jake Keel and Juan Meja Botero, uh, filmed in 2016. Uh, The film is a feature length documentary about the social, cultural and environmental tension that exists along the Haitian Dominican Republic border. This is, I thought, an interesting film that really illustrated the way that so many of these issues are intertwined with each other in ways that we don't always uh, consider. George, it might be helpful for our, our listeners to start off with just a quick history of the Caribbean and specifically the colonial history of the Caribbean, because it feels like a lot of what we see being played out in this film has its roots way, way back in time, and the film doesn't always uh, get into those
1: yeah well it's it, there's a lot to be said there I'll, I'll just try to give a brief overview but the islands of the Caribbean were of course you know the first uh, points of contact between uh, the European explorers Christopher Columbus of course being the first and the the new world and they become the most exploited environments of the new world by the European. Colonizers most aggressively by the Spanish, but the English are also involved. The French are involved. The Dutch are involved. The Scandinavians and, even get involved for a brief, <laughs> in brief uh, moment of inglory, in if that's if that's a word. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but so th- there was, uh, and the island of Hispaniola, where this uh, film takes place, was settled by the Spanish and the French. Haiti being the, the French uh, portion, and and. Dominican Republic being the Spanish portion. And there's actually, and I should mention that the slave economy of the Caribbean was mainly sugar. And sugar was an extraordinarily devastating plantation system on not only human life, because the amount of labor and the type of labor that was required was really, really oppressive but it was also the most devastating to the environment. It involved, you know, cutting wholesale large forests to burn wood, to refine the sugar and clearing land for the sugar itself. And it was just very labor intensive. And so wherever sugar plantations went throughout the Caribbean, Spanish, the English, the French and others ended up having to import large numbers of slaves. And Haiti ends up being the, uh, the, the, colonial settlement that has the highest portion of slaves to free citizens anywhere in the Caribbean. And at its height, the population was 90% slave and 5% free black and f- about 5% white. So it was extraordinarily bottom heavy right, in terms of a, of a social hierarchy. And it was a system waiting to fail. And the slaves, in fact, did rebel in the late 18th century as they heard the news about liberty, equality, and, and fraternity as sort of the mantras of the French Revolution. That sounded really good to them. And so in the name of the ideals of the French Revolution, the slaves rebelled. And that war, of uh, rebellion is concluded in 1804. And that ends up sending shockwaves throughout the entire Caribbean and through the whole slave owning portions of the New World in South America and in the United States. And Haiti is sort of immediately ostracized as a nation and sort of punished for its independence and it never is really able to join any sort of, you know, there was no such thing as a League of Nations formally in that time, but they're really never able to be on par with, with other nations. Well, I didn't realize
0: that the United States didn't recognize Haiti as a nation until 1862, Yeah, after the South has seceded from the Union, right. because it had always been blocked up to that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a black republic, right? A black yeah. independent republic during a time of tremendous racism and racial fear and racial oppression. And so there was this real anxiety about this being spread. The Spanish colony in what is now the Dominican Republic was not quite as labor intense in terms of slave labor as Haiti was. Nobody was as as labor intense as they were. So the population demographically uh, in Dominican Republic resembles many of the other Spanish colonies Uh, in Cuba and Puerto Rico, which end up being sort of roughly 30% direct African descent, 30% mulatto, and and 30% white. So it's it's more of a a spread demographically than Haiti. And so it also becomes an invitation for racism. One thing that's important to recognize is that racism existed in the Caribbean, even though interracial relations were much more frequent, the racism was not as literally black and white as it was in the United States about one drop rules and, you know, color lines, but it was, it was more blurred, but the whiter you were, the more advantage you had. There was no question about that. And so the Dominican Republic ends up seeing itself as, you know, a preferred and superior kind of version of a post-slavery society by the time all of the, um, Spanish settlements move into independence much later. And so the racial tensions you see in the film are very, very old, right? And what's fascinating to me about the film, and this is probably true of, not probably, it is true of our own U.S. border with Mexico, for example, you think of a border as a a clear, bright line, right? And the border actually turns out to be the blurriest of places because in this movie you see you, you hear languages mixing, you hear Spanish mixed with French and French mixed with Spanish. And you, and you, and sometimes you're talking to somebody on one side of the border who's from the other side and so on. And, and, and some of the entrapments like the mother or the widow of the um, murdered man in the story has no place. So these, uh, these sort of border stories are, are pretty typical, but the environment is it ends up being totally altered by the plantation system. So the descriptions you read in Columbus for example when he sees Hispaniola for the first time he describes these hardwood forests of enormous trees and canopies of trees that go for miles and miles and you can't see ground anywhere because it's so dense. You know, it's just absolutely heartbreaking when you read those accounts because we ironically think of the Caribbean as it's advertised in advertisements for the Caribbean cruises as a paradise. And it is a beautiful place, but virtually all of the plants that you see in Caribbean landscapes today are exotic species. There are very few native species left. So that's affected the native fauna as well as the native flora. And it's ironically parallel to a totally transplanted demographic as well. The the islands of the Caribbean lost a great deal of indigenous people as a result of the spread of disease and the imposition of colonialism. And then you've got uprooted people from Africa, uprooted people from different European nations, and you end up with a transplanted human culture and a transplanted natural environment. And and there's you know maybe sort of the modern, to bring it right up to the present, is that the modern legacy of that is that when you have countries of of extreme poverty and and Haiti is by far the most poor uh, certainly of the Caribbean and and arguably in the western hemisphere these are people who have had to destroy their own forests for their own survival right so it's not out of like environmental arrogance or hatred of nature or indifference to nature that this has happened it's out of desperation and the problem is the more degradation the worse the problems. I mean, one one problem that Haiti has that isn't really fully addressed in the film is mudslides during major hurricanes or mudslides after earthquakes, both of which have happened in Haiti to devastating effect, are a direct result of deforestation. And when you have mudslides, you also have just natural erosion that happens much more rapidly. So the quality of the soil in, in a place like Haiti without the forest sort of holding that soil together is is also significantly damaged. You You have a real almost perfect storm of violent, aggressive colonialism and oppression, environmental degradation and transformation that ends up in a sort of self- perpetuating cycle of increasing problems
0: i think this is one of the things i found most compelling about what the film was trying to do is the way that it presents an environmental problem and then you know begins to 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 invite its viewers to to consider all the different layers you know of, of this problem, so from the outside on the one hand you can say, okay, if you look at the, you know these kind of aerial shots of the border right um, and I like how you describe it you know the, the borders that make no real geographic you know sense right that there's no logic to a border so often right these straight lines that you know that cut through mountains and forests and and whatnot and and at times there are these really stunning shots of the Haitian side and the Dominican you know republic side and it's really easy. Kind of outside of the context to say, oh, you know, Haiti's got to get it together, you know, that they they need to clean up their environmental, you know, kind of regulations, they need to enforce them, they need to protect the force, you know, we all know. it. And if one walks into the movie with that assumption, by the end, I, I think you you're you've had that assumption frustrated um right. in realizing that it's not so easy right and that the reasons for it and i think you've given us some you know some really good things to think about here you know go back to an era and a time you know long before the present you know that it's kind of created a situation where you know this is about surviving right and that, that there aren't a lot of good options it's not that they they can or even should let a you know a North American environmental organization come down and tell them what to do. <laughs> that would be kind of a you know a new form of colonialism. Instead, that there needs to be a better understanding of the complex social and economic you know systems that are that are still in place there. That, like you said, are creating this cycle of of destruction that that gets worse you know and worse and worse.
1: Yeah, and what's really tragic, of course, is that you know Haiti has the. By virtue of that large percentage of the population being African slaves during the time of slavery, that is one of the reasons why Haiti has the highest retention of African culture anywhere in the New World. And African culture is polytheistic and animistic. It's very connected to nature and nature is essential to the religious life of, you know, most any West African uh, citizen of, of the last for 3 or 4 centuries. And so for these people to come to Haiti and be connected to that landscape even if it's a transplanted place, even if it's under the circumstances of slavery, the natural world was a place of solace, it was a place of medical resources, it was a place of worship and a connection to the gods. And so what's tragic about all the environmental degradation is that it has actually also degraded and undermined the preservation of African or what's called neo-African culture in the new world, because it, it's, it's so hard to preserve that culture without its connection to the physical environment. So yeah, it's very contrary to the values and belief systems of slaves and their descendants. To end up with an environment that looks like that, but so it's it, it, it yeah, I mean to imagine like you know Doctor Seuss's Lorax showing up and saying I speak for the trees, that kind of paradigm of environmental care or preservation just is is almost nonsensical in this context because you can obviously you you obviously can't solve the environmental problem here until you solve the socioeconomic problems, right? Until you figure out how in the world are these people going to feed themselves, cook their food and survive if they don't have an energy source other than charcoal, right? Yeah. So it's it's incredibly tragic to me that this fame, film was really painful to watch. and And I will say I was very worried at the beginning of the film because, you know, I thought, oh, this is a story about a murder and it's all from the Dominican Republican side. And surely they're, they're going to have to include both sides. And of course they, they do, but I was, I was a little nervous that it was going to end up being less complicated than it actually was. So I thought, I thought the film does a brilliant job of sort of showing the complexity of the stories on, on both sides of the border. I've actually, I had an eyewitness of that border. I've flown over over it in an airplane uh, many years ago and and saw exactly what you see in that film and it is just so shocking and and stark uh, to see.
0: Yeah. You know, we're especially lucky to have you uh, here talking about this. I think that that what this film is doing is enacting something that maybe wouldn't have been as easy to make a film about even, you know, 15 20 years ago, right, where Environmental discourse seemed to be at odds in a lot of ways with post-colonial ideas uh, for for the reasons that we've already intimated right that it there was a this tension or or presumption that perhaps environmentalism represented a kind of neocolonialism right another way that the West could kind of come into developing parts of the world and kind of insist on a on a certain you know kind of action or, or way of being. And you and 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 Liz Lugree and uh, Rob Nixon and and others, I think, really helped eco critics, you know, over the last couple of decades to recognize the way that these issues intersect, right? That you really can't talk about them in separate lanes, but you've got to find a way to bring them together. And if we look at the critical literature, you know, kind of coming out in in more recent years, you, you see a reflection of this, that these, you know, that these two theoretical schools seem to have made amends with each other. And some really exciting, you know, work has been done like this film, right? That, you know, recognizes that there's an environmental crisis at hand, that that crisis has devastating effects on the people that are involved. But it's not so simple as we just need to go down, plant more trees and tell people not to chop them down. That it's part of of something that's, you know, has deep historical roots, that has deep cultural roots, um, economic and uh, kind of social cross-border. I mean, that this relationship with the Dominican Republic, you know, the willingness to kind of demonize Haitians, you know, as being, you know, of a different kind of race and a different type of of person. I mean, I was really shocked at some of the comments that, you know, some of the people were making on the Dominican Republic side, where they want to put all of their problems on this ethnic other. That's, That's caught up in, you know, this mix of all these sorts of issues.
1: Yeah, it's a a really interesting case in point about Haiti is in terms of how social and economic considerations have to be factored in when we think about environmental protection and environmental conservation. The country of Haiti is also one of the best examples of, you know, and maybe I shouldn't say best examples as I'm using it as the worst thing that can happen, but it's one of the clearest examples of a Situation in which the most poor suffered the most for environmental degradation, even environmental degradation that they play a hand in, right? I mean, I think the film is really helping us to understand, and maybe it maybe it could have done it even more in in a, in a longer film version where it could go back into the history a little bit. But you really have to understand that the environmental degradation that is that is happening there it has its causes in forces that go beyond individual agency, right? It's yeah. the forces of history and and forces of oppression and racism that are centuries old. And so the the environmental degradation that we're seeing is sort of but at the hand of those forces not just uh, you know i it's as if the the people who are actually doing the chopping down of the trees are just small agents in a much larger agency as it were right a much larger set of legacies and circumstances that have gotten into motion and that have led to that and so it's it's interesting that even if it's the poor who are cutting down the trees out of desperation, it's also the poor who then end up suffering and often dying in mudslides because of an earthquake or because of, I mean Haiti suffered uh, has suffered a sequence of intense hurricanes and earthquakes, and you know if we know that earthquakes uh, excuse me uh, hurricanes are intensified by virtue of climate change. We also know that the effects of a hurricane are intensified by virtue of colonialism for the reasons I was just spelling out. And so like their ability to be resilient in the face of a massive storm is just unbelievably compromised by by comparison to what we experienced even in Hurricane Katrina, which was the disaster it was precisely because of a similar kind of problem of the poor having poorer resources and fewer recourses to adapting and adjusting and, and, you know, uh, uh, escaping even the the circumstances of an intensified storm. But Haiti's far worse. I mean, I should mention too, after all of that happened, then there was this outbreak of cholera in Haiti because of all of the water-soaked hillsides and mudslides uh, that, that uh, were, ended up being sort of perfect uh, petri dishes for the spread of cholera. So it's, it's just a, an absolute tragedy how human hatreds and hierarchies, racism has led to and then been exacerbated by environmental degradation.
0: Yeah, and, you know disparities in in wealth and in opportunity. I mean, this is one of the you know the, the points that's made at uh, particularly at the end of the film is one of the things that's driving this today and has and has created the situation historically, and given our our context here at BYU it it may be appropriate to you know to think about this and it certainly kind of led me back to this to bring together you know the two areas of your research here that you know the, the doctrine and covenants in interesting ways links issues of of stewardship of of material things with you know with inequality right this idea that you know that we are to be wise stewards and that part of what this means is that the poor to be exalted and the you know and the rich you know brought low do you have any thoughts about this idea of, of inequality and, and kind of in terms of our own spiritual obligations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important reasons why we should care about environmental degradation actually is its human impact, right? I mean, I think it's one thing certainly and uh, to say that nature is inherently valuable all on its own and deserves respect and honor and care. But it's also important to recognize that when we do harm to the natural world, we exacerbate the harms that we do to human beings and that the, the reason we're doing harm to the environment is because we are doing harm to one another. I mean, I think the law of consecration makes it clear that, you know, we are dangerous to the environment to the degree that we're dangerous to one another. Or another way of putting it is if, if we can't treat each other equally, we're never going to be treating nature fairly right yeah. and and the law of consecration seems to imply you know certainly it clearly states in section 104 where the lord says there is enough in despair but then he has this very important qualification that it has to be done in his way and his way is what you just described right he says and as long as as long as there is inequality in the world. And there are some who have more than others then the world lies in sin. And we're all, we're all in trouble, you know? So there's a sort of collective sense of responsibility that ought to motivate us to care for environmental issues. Not because we care more about the, about the spotted owl than we do about the logger, so to speak, but because we care about both. We can't actually take care of people who are suffering and who are in poverty If we aren't willing to take care of the environment, that's a false dichotomy. I mean, obviously there are ways to take care of the environment at the expense of the poor, and that's not what we would want. But it's important to recognize that, you know, when people say you've got to choose between one or the other, I think the law of consecration says, no, you can't, you know, I mean, you can, if you want, but if you do, you'll harm both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's. I think that's a really uh, great insight and a, and a good place for us to uh, to leave this uh, discussion. Thanks, George, for being willing to to come on the podcast
1: again and for these really great insights about this film. Sure, thanks, Chip. Thanks for bringing it to BYU. It's a great film.
0: Well, Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. This is the last regular podcast for the winter 2021 season. Next week, uh, the directors of international cinema uh, will be back on the podcast for a semester in review episode. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Marina hegstrom Pratt, Johnny Stallings and his band who composed and performed our theme music. Thank you to uh, you, our listeners, and we hope, COVID willing, that we'll see you all live again in 250 The Kimball Tower next fall.